There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Well, welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kruminski and Colin Andrews. And we had an interesting discussion today with Ben Carlson from Ritholds Wealth Management. And geez, Greg, I hope the listeners really enjoy this one. And I think they will. He's an interesting guy. He writes a lot. He blogs a lot. He has podcasts and he does a lot of research. So a lot of what he says is based on his experience as an advisor, as well as just a ton of research that he's done. So, Well, and really trying to answer those guy. questions about what to do these days, because there's been so much volatility in the world and specifically around this upcoming U.S. election. But I thought he did a good job of answering those questions. He certainly did. And so hopefully everyone will enjoy it. Just a quick mention, he has written a couple of books, which could be of interest. The first one he wrote was called A Wealth of Common Sense, why simplicity trumps complexity in any investment plan. And I think that really ties in nicely with the message that we got from Carl Richards a couple of podcasts ago about how there's no need to make your life or your investment plan any more complex than it needs to be, and the simpler the better. Right on. Well, listen, enjoy the show. Enjoy. All right, welcome back to the free lunch today with a guest, Ben Carlson, Director of Institutional Asset Management with Ritholtz Wealth Management and co-host of the Animal Spirits Podcast and an author of many books, it looks like. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, guys. So Ben, I got to ask you, I grew up in a place called Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. You may be familiar with that name, maybe not, but our cable feed came from Detroit. So I watched a lot of Detroit local TV and got to know people like Mel Farr Superstar, who I think owned a car dealership in Detroit and watched a lot of the Detroit Tigers and Detroit Lions games. But maybe tell us a little bit about your story because you do reside in Michigan, correct? Yes. I assume though that you didn't become Red Wings fans because of that though? Well, no. I mean, some things are sacred. Hockey is sacred in Canada and to cheer for the Red Wings would have been, I don't know, treason. Yeah. Back in the 90s, we had a pretty good run there. Very good. Yeah. I've been in the finance world for a while now, mostly on the institutional side. So I've worked with endowments and foundations and pension funds and worked with a consulting firm that worked with a variety of those. And then for an endowment fund that just mainly focused on one institution. And about five years ago, I came over to Ritholtz Wealth Management to help manage some smaller relationships there on the foundation and endowment side. And I found that a lot of the smaller nonprofits were overlooked in a lot of ways. And I really wanted to really expand my reach in terms of the clients I could work with and work with some individuals and families as well, instead of just one large institution. So once I got into the writing bug a little bit, I got to know the guys at Ritholtz that Josh Brown and Barry Ritholtz, who founded the firm, had been doing for a while and realized we had pretty similar philosophy and values and ideas about the world. And they had said that they had some nonprofits that had come to them and wanted to potentially have their money managed, but they didn't really have any expertise in the space. So they asked me to come on board to do it and been there for five years now. Well, that's excellent. Good run. So Ben, 
One of the things, obviously, that's been coming up these days, and I'm sure you're surrounded by it, I should let you know that this episode is going to air on November 3rd. You may be familiar with why November 3rd is kind of a historic day. What we were really hoping to dive in with you today was a little bit about, obviously, this upcoming election, but also the big questions about what should investors be doing. And I know I've been listening to a couple of your podcasts, and you've kind of gotten into that about market timing and things like that. But what are some of the bigger questions? that you're faced with these days as they pertain to the election or an election? I think they range from short-term to long-term. So in the short-term, obviously, we're getting very close to the date. And when this airs, we're already there. And who knows how long it'll take to shake out after the fact. But people want to know, is there going to be increased volatility because of the election? No matter who wins, one side or the other, is it going to cause any panic in my portfolio? Or are people going to freak out? And then long-term, Whichever guy wins, are the policies going to impact my taxes or my portfolio or whatever, the industry I work in, something like that. And these are the same questions that come up every four years, of course, no matter who wins or loses. And the problem is, for a lot of investors, is that politics totally cloud our ideas of what is going to happen in our portfolio. And we don't realize that every four years, these things move on and the president doesn't matter nearly as much as people think in terms of the markets. And they always get way too much credit when things go well and way too much blame when things go poorly. I mean, there's... 30 plus trillion dollars in the US stock market. It's really hard for one person or one person's policies to make that much money move up and down as much as people would like to believe. So we just like to caution people that bringing politics into your portfolio is really difficult to do. And when we went through this in 2016, our chief investment officer, Barry Ritholtz, wrote a letter to clients the night before the election. And all he did was change the name of the winner or the loser the next day. He already had written the entire. <laughs> letter to people because he was going to say the same thing either way. It's, listen, if your person won, great, but don't let that cloud your judgment about what's going to happen next. And if your person lost, same thing. Don't let it cloud your judgment and don't let that seep into your portfolio decisions about the long term and your own personal circumstances and what's going on in your life and what your financial circumstances are, not just the politics of what's going on. So we just like to tell people to just keep the politics in your portfolio as separate as you can. And probably... Ben, this is the number one question we've been having, which is unusual for Canadians to be so concerned about what's happening in a U.S. election. But I guess the question is, for a lot of people, if you were sitting with a million dollars cash today to invest, would you invest it today the same way you would a year from now or two years from now? Listen, the way we think about this is when we talk to clients, we always tell them, there's no way we can invest your money if we don't understand your willingness, need, and ability to take risk. If we don't know your risk profile and your time horizon, it's impossible for us to invest your capital. And people do get scared around times like this where they say, you know what? I'm a new client. I'm sitting on some cash. I want to just slowly average it in over time and see what happens because you're hoping to catch maybe some volatility and catch some lower prices. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that because it can minimize regret for people. And there's nothing wrong with dollar cost averaging. But we would prefer if people take an asset allocation or portfolio plan or financial plan and get it invested and stick with it because it makes sense for them today, tomorrow, a few years from now. And we like to base those decisions more on, certainly, obviously, the markets come into play and where we are in the economy and the cycle and all this stuff. That matters in terms of how we're building portfolios for people and maybe some of the decisions we're making on the edges. But it really comes down more to their personal circumstances and have their financial situation changed at all and their spending levels and their job or potential what they're doing in retirement. So We like to make it more on the personal side of things than focusing exclusively on the markets for people. And again, that regret avoidance is an important part. And yet in your book, A Wealth of Common Sense, 
you tell the story of the worst market time where essentially puts his money in at the very highest point in various market cycles and the results are still pretty okay when you look out 30 years of investing. I'm revisiting that one. I'm, I hired someone recently to turn it into a cartoon. I'm trying to expand my palette a little bit in terms of content. And so I've been revisiting that one a little bit. And I wrote that in 2014, I think, and I put it in my book. And to this day, it's still by far the most popular post I've ever written by a factor of five, probably. People seem to come back to that one a lot. And just the point was that if you have decades and decades ahead of you and you're a net saver, and your timing of your purchases doesn't matter all that much. Patience and compound interest and these things can actually smooth that out a little bit. So trying to time these things and get really cute with it. I turn 40 next summer. If we're including retirement, let's say my life expectancies in my 80s or 90s, I could have four or five decades left ahead of me of retirement. I know I'm going to have, I don't know, five or six recessions ahead of me, at least four or five market crashes that are going to be pretty difficult to deal with, and a bunch of corrections along the way too. So if I'm trying to time every single one of those, eventually I'm going to make a misstep and I'm going to make a mistake as opposed to just sticking with a plan that sees me periodically invest and rebalance and stick to an asset allocation and portfolio that I pick that I can live with and sleep at night, those sorts of things. I think that's just a simpler and less stressful way to do it because if you're going at the extremes at all times and you're trying to go to cash and then back to stocks and to cash and then let's go to bonds and well, what about gold and all these things and you end up with this mutual fund salad or ETF salad of a portfolio that is just all over the place, eventually that's going to blow up in your face, even if you get lucky a few times. So I think just trying to take the timing element out of it as much as possible and not worry about it, I think that can help if you have a long time horizon ahead of you. So just the cyclicality of markets and everything, it seems like. I was going to mention, I got a question for you, Ben, actually. So I was reading recently about a US presidential candidate, and this was his platform. America first, based on lowering taxes and imposing high tariffs. Who do you think that was? What are we talking? Someone from the 1920s or 30s, maybe? Is that? <laughs> it is. It's Warren G. Harding from 1920. I was reading in a book called The Downfall of Money, which is a book about the devaluation of the German mark. But I find it interesting that that theme was repeated again, I believe, kind of like a Reagan-style theme, and then repeated again current day. So there's cyclicality to that, too. And one of the things that people don't take into account either when they're trying to compare these presidents, well, this president had this returns and this president had these returns. People don't compare what were the valuations when that happened and was there a huge recession or market crash right before that president took over or what were the interest rates or the valuations? So there's all these factors that go into it that people don't really take into account. And again, they try to give too much blame when things go bad and too much credit when things go well. But that's a period too that the 20s is one that I've been looking back on for the last seven or eight months too because in 1918, we had a pandemic back then. And then there ended up a few years later being a minor depression. And then we had these roaring 20s that went bonkers. We don't need to talk about what happened next with the Great Depression. But all these things you look at in history, and there's always something bad that happens. And people want to be able to think like they can time when that's going to happen in the future and predict it. And it, it's so hard because coming into this year, if I would have given you all the headlines and the economic data, your portfolio probably would look different in January than it would have. A lot of people probably would have gone to cash. We're going to shut down the economy effectively, the biggest economy in the world for two months as everyone quarantines and people shut in their houses and everything is just going to, we're going to turn the lights off. And the US stock market is up this year. And I mean, I don't know how many people would have believed you if you would have told them that. So trying to time these things, it's not only knowing what's going to happen and predicting and forecasting what's going to happen in the future. You also have to get the reaction of investors correctly. 
that's harder than ever to do, I think, especially when we have so much more intervention from central banks and the government in these sort of affairs. And what you've touched on there is not only, I guess, advisor behavior in terms of what we're recommending to clients, but obviously investor behavior, which you've written about it and talked about at great length. So what do you think of all the investor behaviors that we're all subject to? What's the biggest mistake investors make from a behavioral standpoint, would you think? I kind of like to break this down into two groups. And because I've worked in the institutional space for so long, I think the professional investors, their biggest problem is overconfidence. Because everyone who becomes a professional investor is, is very highly educated, and they may have some accreditations to their name, and they've been studying this and doing this for a long time. And they almost outsmart themselves into thinking that they know more than everyone else, even though the collective brain trust of the markets these days has probably never been smarter and there's never been more information available. And it's just really hard for really intelligent people to admit what they don't know. So I think overconfidence for that group is almost always the biggest blind spot. And for the more retail-oriented person who really doesn't pay attention to this stuff on a daily basis as much, I think it's just really not understanding who your competition is and what you're up against. And I think a lot of times people assume complex problems like the market require complex solutions. And I've always been just of the mind that simpler solutions can actually help more. And perfect is the enemy of good a lot of times. So I think a lot of times a decent investment strategy you can stick with is far superior to one that is amazing, but you can't stick with. So I think that's part of the problem for a lot of people is just trying to make things more complicated than they really should be. Well, now your podcast, Animal Spirits, is a reference to John Maynard Keynes and how people arrive at financial decisions, correct? Yes. And I was actually just finishing up the last few weeks a biography of Keynes. that was excellent by Zach Carter. And, and yeah, and Keynes was kind of ahead of his time in a lot of this stuff and understanding how that works. And I think that's one of the things that people underestimate, not just about themselves, but about the rest of the market. And so I think a lot of times people get into this mindset of, I have to constantly go against the grain and go against the market. And being contrarian at all times actually is kind of hard to do because a lot of times the crowd is right most of the time. So being a contrarian is only helpful on the fringes, I guess, when things get really too pessimistic or too optimistic. And I think Keynes saw a lot of that in his animal spirit stuff, really just showed how far the pendulum can swing in both directions. Now, but you talked about overconfidence bias, and I also was reading that Keynes, actually, after the Versailles Treaty that ended World War I, he actually invested in the German mark and lost the equivalent of $500,000 in today's dollars, speculating on the German mark. So was he also the victim of his own biases? One of the interesting things about Keynes is he's known as one of the greatest macroeconomic thinkers ever. But when he tried to take his macro insights and apply them to the markets, he failed. And to your point, he failed horribly. And it wasn't until he almost became more of a concentrated Warren Buffett-like stock picker, where he became more of a buy and hold long-term investor. He took over the endowment at King's College and that's when he turned his investing life around. But yeah, when he was trying to forecast interest rates and economic growth and what was going to happen in the market, he actually fared pretty poorly in terms of his investments. Did he keep the whole John Maynard Keynes on those projections or did he remove Maynard to be a pseudo author? I think it definitely helped his cachet a little bit, keeping the three names there. <laughs> Just a question. You've got a new book out, which is called Don't Fall For It, A Short History of Financial Scams. Tell us a little bit about that book. Like, why did you feel it was important to write that book? And what are some of the key lessons in that book for our listeners? A lot of the business books that I've read over time, they take a success story and then they try to reverse engineer it and show you, if you were to just do these five or 10 things, then you can be successful. And I think there's a lot of survivorship bias there because 
a lot of times there's so many lucky breaks or things that went perfectly that it's impossible to replicate the success of Steve Jobs or Google or Amazon and Bezos or any of these really well-known success stories. Because I think that you can learn a lot more from failures because more people get knocked down than anything. So I wanted to show what happens when people, how people get taken advantage of. And in, in a backdoor, it was a way of getting back to behavior and decision-making. And it was kind of, why do people make such poor decisions? And I tried to tell it through different stories of people getting taken advantage of. And of course, people always kind of over the mindset, like, oh, well, that would never happen to me. So this probably doesn't apply to me. But the thing that really shocked me most in my research was the majority of the time, it actually is the smarter person who gets taken advantage of because a lot of times, and not only smart, but people with a lot of money, and obviously because they make for good marks. And of course, you go after the people with more money, but it was people who were more highly educated that got taken advantage of. And it got back to that overconfident thing where they think they know. And especially when you build up some capital and you become a wealthy person, you assume that, well, this isn't for everyone, but obviously there's a secret path to more wealth for me. So why wouldn't I take this holy grail? And people assume that the stuff that sounds too good to be true, well, maybe it's not too good to be true for me. And so they fall prey to it. And actually, one of the stats I found was that it's almost impossible to calculate how much money is lost through fraud every year because so many people are so embarrassed that they never report to the authorities because the story would make them sound so much dumber. <laughs> then they would want people to know that they don't tell anyone about it because they're so ashamed of themselves for falling for something. As you were talking about that, the thing that sprung to my mind was I hear wealthy individuals say things like, well, I should be invested in hedge funds because isn't that what rich people do? And isn't that kind of the same thing that you just described? Yeah. In a roundabout way, people look at it as a status symbol. And that's the way that a lot of these, I found actually your comment about the 1920s. I looked at different facets of what caused these frauds to occur in these scams. And a lot of times it was during these huge rip-roaring bull markets. And the 1920s was a perfect example. And I found just story after story where people were taken advantage of because people got so much looser because everything was going well and people, they had this fear of missing out. And then the opposite side of that is like after 2008 and 2009, when people just want to protect everything. And that's another fear that you can prey on where... The fear of being in? Well, and you look at like someone like Bernie Madoff, the returns that he was making up for his $60 billion Ponzi scheme, they were never like grand slam returns. It was like 10 or 11% every year, but I think he never made up a return that showed him having a down quarter. So the people who were invested in him thought, oh, this is just steady and he's got this program that he uses or this strategy that he uses that keeps me relatively safe. And it's not like he's promising me 40% returns like a traditional Ponzi scheme, he's given me 10 or 11%, but I just never see my money go down. It just goes up in a straight line over time. And I think that lulled people into thinking, oh, well, this guy's protecting me and he's just he's investing in a safer strategy than anyone else has. And so I think there, there's two sides of that coin where you can really prey on people's fears. For some people, they never want to miss out on what's going on and get rich really quickly. For other people, they really want to protect everything and they have this loss aversion. And so it's kind of two sides of whatever bias affects you more. Do you see or anticipate more scamming going on, or is this something that we're just going to have to live with? There's always a certain number of people that are going to try to take advantage of others, and we'll just have to be mindful of it and look for signs that it's happening. On the one hand, you'd think, well, the internet allows us to have more information than ever, and and obviously that should make people smarter about this stuff. And, And as we can see with the proliferation of scams and conspiracy theories on social media that we know that's not the case. And I think the internet actually makes it easier for people to be taken advantage of, whether it's some sort of email scam or whatever. I 
documented one in my book where this woman was sent hundreds of thousands of dollars to an actor who had messaged her on Facebook. And of course, it wasn't really him. It was just someone scamming her, pretending to build a relationship and saying, my next $20 million check for a movie is going to come in. I just need you to float me a little cash until that happens. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, I I think the internet is going to make it. I think it's almost easier to figure out which buttons to push on people when you have the technology at your fingertips. So yeah, it's probably certainly not going to go away. No, for sure. Well, listen, speaking of technology, what happens in Canada is we tend to lag behind the U.S. by some number of years with regards to new innovations, new technologies. What should we be looking for? What innovations and new technologies are you excited about that are happening in our industry as we go forward here? I think that the pandemic has pushed forward through, of course, a lot of trends are already in place. One of them I think that a lot of people are going to figure out really quickly is just the fact that people are so much more comfortable doing something like the three of us are doing today, having a call on Zoom. And so my firm has been remote for the entirety of our firm. We always built it that way. We have clients across the U.S., And the majority of our calls are done over the phone. We've probably only met, I don't know, 20 to 30% of our clients in person. The rest have all been digital relationships. And part of the reason that's been the case is because they found us through the content that we produce, whether it's podcasts or videos or blogs. And so there's a level of trust there. So we've been doing video calls and regular phone calls and texts or emails for a while. And I think people really have to get used to the fact that now that people have seen, okay, we can actually pull this off and do this. I've done a few speeches at some conferences over Zoom. And that's something that a year ago, I would have said, really, a conference on Zoom? And it's just something that people are going to be used to now. And I think the technology will change and improve. So I think if you can use these communication tools to your advantage for clients, it's so much easier than having... There's always going to be those clients who want the face-to-face interaction. And that's fine. So you're probably still going to have to give that to some people. But there's going to be other clients who are going to say, you know what, instead of getting in my car and driving down to see you and parking and getting out and walking up and going up the elevator, why can't we just hop on a call real quick and knock this out and then move on with our day? So I think that simple technology in, in terms of communication, just the fact that people have been forced into this and now it's people are going to be used to it. I think that, that aspect of things. And then getting used to people working remotely. When I breached the subject of working remotely for Ritholtz, I joined the firm and we had not had a remote employee yet. And I told them, my family's here, my friends are here. We had just had a daughter. I don't think packing up my stuff and moving from West Michigan to Manhattan is really going to work right now. Can we work around this? They kind of said, if you would have asked us this 20 years ago, we probably would have said, see you later. But now we have the technology and the tools available to make it. So we're mostly a paperless firm and we handle everything over the cloud and we document everything on the internet. And sure, why not? And so now we have roughly half of our firm, the employees work remotely all around the country. So I think just getting used to that, the workplace and then communicating with people, I think that's just something that more people are going to want. And so that means you're going to have to use different tools and technologies to run your firm, basically, and get used to a lot of those tools as well. Right on. Now, Halloween is upon us, which is maybe an interesting segue. Working remotely, do you also trick-or-treat remotely? Or do you take your kids door-to-door for... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to collect candy these days. I don't know what we're going to do. With the, <laughs> I know in some states they have it basically outlawed. I think we're doing a actually a little parade this year. We're just letting the kids walk down in their costumes. That's a good question. I basically will do whatever my wife tells me, <laughs> I guess, but <laughs> I'll follow orders. Certain things are the same on both sides of the border, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some things are different though. I mean, obviously we have an electoral system here. It's similar to the States. We don't have things like the electoral college vote, but we also don't get to vote directly for 
our prime minister. I mean, we don't have a say other than voting for, I guess, whatever party we want to support. But there is one major difference, though, is that I was reading yesterday about how, I don't know if it was a bill or a law or something, was sort of put forward to ban guns from voting stations, and it was overturned. It's not something that I have to say I've ever thought of here is, will there be guns at a voting station? But I think that was actually in Michigan, by the way, where yes. I live. Yeah. <laughs> so we have similar but different issues around voting, but I guess I never really would have thought about bringing a gun to a voting station. There certainly is certain topics here that seem like they can never be breached for whatever reason. Obviously, a lot of it has to do with politics and the amount of money that's involved, I think, in terms of the candidates getting money from supporters and raising money from corporations and that sort of thing. So unfortunately, I think in a lot of ways that we move, you talked about technology moves more slowly up there. Obviously, in terms of that stuff, we move far more slowly here. And it's the kind of thing I think you're going to look back in the future in, I don't know how long, 10, 20 years and be like, how did this stuff ever happen without just a little common sense? But obviously, we can't get over some of those hurdles quite yet. We certainly wish you all the luck in the upcoming election. I think all of us, regardless of whether we're directly involved, hope that it goes smoothly without violence, without too much drama. And there's a clear winner on November the 4th. Will Barry actually have the same letter ready to send out? We'll see. I think that Barry has written a lot about this, about keeping politics out of your portfolio. And I'm sure he'll have two ready to go. And who knows, maybe we're going to have to write one every week until this thing is figured out. But I'm going to choose to be a glasses half full guy and hope that things go smoothly. Right. Hope is the only thing stronger than fear is what I was told the other day. So I like that. Being an optimist is good. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you didn't have to do this. We really appreciate having you on and we continue to listen to your show and continue to read what you're writing. So thanks so much. Of course. Thanks, guys. All right. Any parting? No, just thanks again for taking the time and we'll look forward to hearing more from you. Sure. Good talking to you guys. Appreciate it. Well, that was a great discussion with Ben Carlson, again, from Ritholds Wealth Management. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed that. And I, I hope the listeners got a lot out of it. Greg, what do you think? Well, I think so. As I say, he's an interesting guy and he has got a great perspective on the U.S. side of things. I really like the commentary about the cyclicality of markets and trying to answer that question that all investors have right now. What do I do with an upcoming election? Should I be making changes to my portfolio, et cetera? And the simple answer from Ben and from a lot of people in our industry is, well, no, because we're talking about the next seven plus years of being invested, not the next seven days. That's right. The differentiation, things can matter in the short term and in the long term, they actually have very little impact. So the questions of whether to invest today, wait till after the election, in the end, again, it might have some short-term impact, but will not be noticeable over a period of 10 years or what have you. And we'll see what the next couple of days looks like because this is coming out on election day. That's right. So we'll have a lot more to talk about probably next week. Exactly. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. 
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.